0: Okay, we're in Mark chapter 10 now, we're in a new chapter, and uh, I will simply read through it, the 12 verses that we're doing this morning, and then then we'll pray and then we'll study. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house the disciples asked him about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and he, uh, and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would come to your word tonight with soft hearts, willing and able to hear from your word, Lord. May we not be hard-hearted like the Israelites, but may we be willing to hear from you in your word, and may we be changed by it, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Jesus has been uh, uh, training his disciples in the more advanced issues of discipleship and in verse uh, 1 of chapter 10 he leaves the region and goes to Judea again beyond the Jordan and the crowds are there again and he then continues to teach and we've seen thus far that the teaching he's been doing has been to disciples and so at this point we presume that's pretty much the same. What is interesting here now is that the Pharisees came up in order to test him. So we know why the Pharisees are here. We've been told why they're here. They're here in order to test Jesus. So their desire here, in a sense, is to catch Jesus out. Now, we are going to have a question from them which is designed to catch Jesus out. We'll tell you why that's the case in a moment. Um, But there's a question from uh, the Pharisees, and the question is this, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And so this then puts us uh, into the whole topic of divorce. Now, this passage does not give us all of our answers. There are other passages and portions of Scripture that are needed to get a fuller answer. I'm not doing a topical study on divorce, so I won't be covering those other passages. However, I will go a little bit further than I normally go from the text, because I do think we want to at least be able to draw some firm conclusions. And the reason for that is this, and, and I'll say this at this stage as a hypothesis, and then we can we can look at the evidence I present today together and we can go from there, but I, I suggest to you that the Church has capitulated on this doctrine almost more than any other. And I find it utterly bemusing that Christians are up in arms about, oh, same-sex marriage, no, you can't have that because the sanctity of marriage, God's sanctity of marriage, and those same churches that are speaking out against it, and I agree with them by the way, That that is something that is not biblical, I'm not suggesting it is. But the same churches allow divorces willy-nilly the entire time. They just allow people to divorce for almost any reason. If somebody does get divorced, there's no church discipline, there's no counselling against, oh, well, these things happen, you know, when in fact this is a far more serious issue. So with that in mind, as a suggestion, as a hypothesis, as you like, let's see what the text says with regards to it. Now, firstly, let's talk about why this was a test. Why was this a test? I mean, they could have asked him a whole number of questions about a whole number of topics. Why was this a test? Well, the reason was, is that there were two schools of thought amongst the Pharisees. There's the Shammai and the Hillel. And the Shammai basically did not allow there to be uh, divorce for any reason other than um, pretty much adultery, but not specifically so. Let's talk about that in a second. It's interesting that in the parallel account in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, Matthew says, if any man divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality. Now, it's interesting that in Mark, that exception isn't here it's not here. And we're going to need to talk about this exception a little bit. Firstly, let's talk about the context of Matthew and Mark and why Mark might not put it and Matthew would. Matthew is writing to Jews who know their law very, very well. The Shammai Pharisees, the the rabbis of the Shammai school of thought, they They believed, as I said, that that, that divorce was only allowed in the case of sexual immorality or adultery, and they did so on the basis of Deuteronomy 24. And in Deuteronomy 24, and don't bother turning there because we've got a lot to cover tonight, but in Deuteronomy 24, we're told this, when a man takes a wife and he marries her, okay, so the beginning of a marriage, if she finds no favor in his eyes... So he's married someone, but now he doesn't like her, because, no, he doesn't like her for any reason, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand... um, or if the latter man dies, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her back again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land that your Lord, uh, that Yahweh your God, is giving you for inheritance. Right, let's reiterate that. Here's the situation. A man marries a woman. The woman then doesn't find favour in his sight. He, He regrets marrying her, doesn't want to be married to her because of indecency. We'll talk about that in a minute. Because of indecency. Literally a shameful matter. In that situation, if he then writes out a certificate of divorce, note he didn't have to, but if he did. If the woman has this indecency, we'll talk about it in a minute, If she has the indecency, if she has the shameful matter, he doesn't, he's not required to divorce her, but if he does, she then goes off and marries somebody else. This person either divorces her again, so she has a second divorce, or else he dies. So now she's not married again. What the text is saying is she may not go back, she may not go back to the original spouse, because to do so would be shameful. Okay? To do so would be shameful. She has now been defiled. So I think that the idea, well, we'll we'll talk about that in a minute, that that's what's being said. Now, what is interesting is that in that passage, this shameful matter, this is almost certainly in Matthew 19 what the pharisees are uh, what Jesus is referring to when he says if a man divorces his wife except for this sexual immorality now we'll come back and talk about that clause in a minute but why does mark not have the clause mark doesn't have the clause because he's not dealing with jews who predominantly have a much greater understanding of the law Mark is constantly referencing back to Old Testament passages because he's talking to a group of people who are going to have church on the basis of the foundation of the Old Testament. But they're not living Mosaic Law. They never have lived Mosaic Law. They're not going to live Mosaic Law. And so their their knowledge of the intricacies of Mosaic Law is not really an issue to them so much. So he simply says, Jesus simply says, if you get divorced and then you marry somebody else, you've committed adultery. That's what he says. Now, what is interesting to note is that Mark's statement is true without the exception clause as much as Matthew's, suggestion, uh, Matthew's statement is true with the exception clause. Okay? In other words, Matthew says except for sexual immorality and Mark doesn't, but both statements are true. And we'll come back to that later because that's important. Now, Let's talk a little bit more about the background. I've got to come back to all of that in a bit, but we're going to work systematically through this. So it is because of that passage in Deuteronomy that the Shammai said you can only get divorced because of adultery. It's interesting that the word in the Deuteronomy in the Hebrew just means something indecent, a shameful matter. What's interesting is a few verses earlier in Deuteronomy 23, the same word is used. And it's used in the context of keeping the camp clean. Keeping the camp clean, in in a holiness sense. And I'll probably leave the first example out for sensibilities, but um, the second example given there is that basically if somebody goes outside and they go to the toilet, number twos rather than number ones, to keep it as smooth and as pleasant as we can. They are to cover up their excrement so that it's not left open. Bury it, like a good cat or a dog will sometimes do. They are to bury it up because, and the reason given is that the Lord passes through the camp and he doesn't want to see the camp being unclean. Remember, there's all the ceremonial uncleaning. It's the, the washing of hands and all of these kind of things. It's in that context. So. That's worth bearing in mind, because the word doesn't necessarily have the implication of anything sexual. But because Jesus, in Matthew, uses the word porneia, meaning sexual immorality, it's where we get our word pornography from, then Jesus clearly interprets it that way. Okay, we're going to have to come back to all of this. There was another school of thought. There was another school of thought. And this school of thought was the Hillel. And the Hillel uh, rabbis basically said, a shameful matter is anything that you find shameful. Anything you find shameful. My wife just burnt the toast. Shame on her. I better get a divorce. Now, that is very interesting. It's very interesting to me. It's interesting because we live in an era where we have uh, allowed the modern concept of a no-fault divorce clause. Just the idea that divorce should be very quick and very easy. You don't want to be married anymore, you're done. It's over. Now, the desire to do that is clearly something that goes back a long, long, long time. Because the Hillel didn't want to be married and so they simply said, we don't want to be married. Shameful woman, I'll get a divorce and he, the man, instigates the divorce. Now, by the way, it's interesting, the other difference between Matthew and Mark is that Matthew says a man divorcing his wife, but it doesn't talk about a wife divorcing her husband. Because under Jewish law, it was the man who instigated the divorce. If the woman, arguably, some scholars will say, could instigate the divorce, but she had to do it in her husband's name. It was kind of a workaround, if you like. So, but in Mark, he's writing to non-Jews and under Roman law, a woman could divorce her husband, like in the world today. So, that's why Mark puts both. So, you have this situation where the Shammai and the Hillel didn't agree. The Shammai seemed to think that indecency, something indecent, a shameful matter in this context, meant something sexual, and the Hillel thought it meant absolutely anything. And part of the problem here is that, and we'll come back to this in a minute as well, but one of the problem here is there's not anywhere in the law a commandment regarding divorce. Have you noticed what I said in Deuteronomy 24? Moses says, if this happens, and if he passes on a divorce certificate. In other words, Moses didn't say, this is how you go about getting divorced. He just talked about it as if it's just something that's there. He didn't command it. He didn't say, this is how you must do it. He simply said, if you're doing it, don't do it then. So, we could talk at length. I've got all sorts of theories about what the indecency was in Deuteronomy 24. Everybody wants to know, what's, what is it that was, you know, was the Shammai right? Was the Hillel right? What is this indecency? Was it sexual? was it Well, firstly, it clearly was sexual, because Jesus uses the word porneia, which is sexual, immorality uh, in Matthew's Gospel. Okay? The problem is this. The problem is this. 99% of Christians seem to read the text to say, if your spouse commits adultery, then that's your exception to get out of a marriage. So if you are a man and your wife commits adultery, or you're a wife and your husband commits adultery, then if that spouse goes off and commits adultery then you Jesus has said except for sexual immorality you can now then pass on a certificate of divorce you can get divorced now in the Christian culture I've heard this said multiple times we are coming from a background where Jesus has reinterpreted not reinterpreted correction where Jesus has interpreted correctly the Mosaic law on the Sermon on the Mount and he said look the problem with adultery, and I'm paraphrasing loosely here, but I know you understand this is the gist of it. The, the problem with adultery is not when you commit adultery. The problem with adultery is when you look lustfully at someone. The problem started then. It didn't, the problem didn't become a problem when you committed adultery, right? And we all understand that, don't we? So, I've heard Christian people say about their spouse, well, they committed adultery in their heart, Therefore, they've committed adultery, therefore, check the box, I've got my exception clause, therefore, I can now get a divorce. That is wrong on about three different levels, and we're going to go through them. First one is this. The word is not the word for adultery. It's pornea. It means sexual immorality. The word for adultery is used in the exact same passage. If you have a divorce and then you remarry, That is adultery. The word is used. So it wasn't that word, it's something else. So I think the best explanation of it is that Jesus is simply referring to the indecency of Deuteronomy 24, and he's saying that it is something sexual. But it's clearly not as simple as adultery because uh, he had another word he could have used to communicate adultery that would have been far clearer and far less complicated. He's clearly making reference to Deuteronomy 24. What is the problem with Deuteronomy 24? The problem is that no one really fully understands what the, that exception clause really meant. We know it's sexual, but otherwise it's not clear. I could hazard a guess. My best guess is, is that because of the use in the previous section about uncovered excrement, there could be the idea of there being something that was unseemly, that was uncovered, as it were. Some uh, commentators think that uh, perhaps the, the woman, he becomes married to the woman and it becomes clear once he's married to her, that her um, alleged virginity was not the case, in which case he can then turn around and say, hey, I've been misled here. So in which case the closest you've got is an annulment rather than a divorce, in modern terminology. It doesn't seem to speak to someone who's been married to somebody for years and years and years. They commit adultery, and then he turns around and says, oh, I want a divorce now because you've committed adultery. That's not the context of Deuteronomy 24, and it seems unlikely that that's what Jesus is talking about. But the most important thing in this passage, and if you forget everything else I say tonight, remember this, because this is the key crux. The Pharisees came up in order to test him. Okay? The two trains of thought, they disagree. There's no clear teaching on divorce in the law. It's just one of those things that kind of was happening in the background. And so there's this issue and he said to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So that's our question. Is it lawful? Okay? Now, what law is he talking about? Is he talking about medieval Chinese law? Is he talking about the law of Burbank in 2017, you know? I was asking Cliff the other day, he was talking to me, I was talking to him, rather, about parking because he works for the police in parking. And I was like, how close can I park to a, to a hydrant, Cliff, you know? And he said, like, well, this is what the law says and what have you. Well, you could go to a different state. I mean, you go to a different state and you turn right on a stoplight, You could be getting a ticket, you could be breaking the law. It's legal in California, but it's not legal in another state. In in, in most other states, I think. I don't know, I'm no expert on state law. You know? And I continually cross the road when I'm not supposed to, and apparently that's illegal because it's jaywalking, but in England we don't even have such a concept. I can cross the road when I like, when it's safe, realistically speaking. So there's different laws in different lands, and there's different laws in different times. You know? In in Canada, there's now a law that's just been passed that that says that if you don't uh, call someone by their preferred gender pronoun, that you've then broken the law, a hate law. Whereas I remember in England, not that many years ago, the law was changed to stop uh, homosexuality being illegal under 21. Laws change, and our culture is changing, and, and the laws are changing with it. And we who are a timeless word are often now seen to be bad where in previous times we weren't seen to be as bad but it'll shift again probably here and there. So laws change. So what's my point? What am I babbling on about? My point is this. They're asking Jesus what does the law of Moses say? Why is that so important? That's so important because the answer that Jesus gave about a, divorce is an answer to what was permissible under Mosaic law. If you eat bacon, if you don't trim your beard quite the right way, if your prayer tassels aren't so good, if you ever have shellfish, if you don't do your washing, if you don't keep the festivals, then don't please start harping on to me about Mosaic law. This says nothing to the Christian about the permissibility of divorce. I am sick and tired of Christians who want a divorce, looking for excuses for a divorce, turning to Matthew 19, looking at the exception clause, applying it to their circumstances regardless of the context and saying, check my box, I can get a divorce now. And that means I can now go off and marry somebody else. The Bible does not say that at all. This is Mosaic law. You want to have that as an excuse for a divorce? Stop eating bacon. You've got to be consistent. It's Mosaic law. Now with that in mind, we can proceed a bit. Jesus said, what did Moses command you? Now, just changing tack slightly now, this is a really good way to respond when someone's trying to catch you out with a question. Jesus does it all the time. Reply with another question. He's asked a question. what What they're essentially saying is, hey Jesus, which side are you on, Shammai or Hillel? They've got a discussion amongst themselves, they're trying to get him to pick and choose a camp. So what he does is very clever. He does is he points them back to what their source is supposed to be. Is it lawful? We well, might think that's obvious. What did Moses say? That tells us what's lawful. No, 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 no. The Pharisees, remember, had thousands of rules in addition to the rules of Moses. So Jesus is holding firm his whole argument with the Pharisees over the entirety of the gospel thus far, in that he's holding firm to his argument, which is, What is required is what's required by Moses, not what's required by all the other rabbis. In other words, what he's saying is it doesn't matter what Shammai says. It doesn't matter what Hillel says. What matters is what Moses says. He points them back to the scripture. It's a very clever answer. Evasive, but the right one. So they said, what did Moses command you? And they say... Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, notice immediately the contrast between the verb in the question and the verb in the answer. In the question, Jesus says, what did Moses command? What did he command? The response is, Moses allowed. Do you see the difference there? That's why there was this disba- debate, this discrepancy. Because Moses never said, hey, this is how you do a divorce. I mean, there were, the, there were rules for this is how you, how you do the sacrifices when a leper's healed, but there wasn't any rules about how you do a divorce. It was just if someone happens to do this. So they then said, well, they're essentially conceding and saying, well, Moses didn't command anything, he simply allowed it. So that's really important. At no point in the Old Testament does God say, this is how you go about divorcing someone. Now that's really significant. In Exodus 21, there's rules about taking concubines. And yet there's still not the allowance, sorry, not allowance, exactly the wrong way, there's still not the command, the, the, the way in which divorce should be done. There's no rules For divorce in that regard. But what there is here in a command about something completely different, Deuteronomy 24, of course, the command is essentially about going back to a former spouse. Um, In passing, it seems as if Moses is okay with it. Allow is probably a fairly good word here. He allows it. So Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, just as Jesus has been evasive with them, they're now being evasive back again. Notice how they're not saying the reason for the certificate. They're just saying, hey, it's allowed. It's allowed. And uh, so Jesus then says to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Interesting. Okay, there's, there's a few things here. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. You said, hold on a second, Andrew, you said a moment ago there was no commandment. No, the commandment's Deuteronomy 24. Which is where it is allowed, not specifically commanded it. But Moses wrote that commandment in the way that he wrote it, allowing for divorce, If you take the Pharisees' word, and notice Jesus doesn't repeat it, but Jesus said he did this because of hardness of heart. The question every Christian needs to know is Does this passage apply to us today? In other words, Is the exception clause something that applies to us? We've already seen that this is an explanation of Mosaic Law. So we know already that it doesn't apply to us per se. But is there some reason that because Jesus said it, or because he's reiterating it, that perhaps it's still true? Well, this makes it very clear. He says he allowed it because of the hardness of their heart. Let's turn with me, and we're staying in Mark's Gospel, But let's go in Mark's Gospel to um, chapter 2. You want to keep your finger in chapter 10. We're going back there. We're just going to skim through a few verses. Now, when Jesus healed the paralytic in chapter 2... He, remember, he sees his faith and he heals him and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And then verse 6, now some of the scribes, here we are, religious leaders, were sitting there questioning in their hearts. So they're basically thinking to themselves, but what are they saying in their hearts? Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving his spirit, they thus questioned him. He says, why do you question these things in your hearts? So they in their hearts, which essentially means they were thinking to themselves, but it's relevant that the word heart is used. They in their hearts are saying, he's blaspheming. He's got no right to do this. Only God could do this. And he's not God, so he can't do it. So the rejection of Christ is in their hearts. Okay? Then look at chapter 3 and verse 5. In chapter 3, there's a man with a withered hand who is healed. And again, notice the connection with chapter 10. The Pharisees are trying to catch Jesus out. They're trying to catch Jesus out. And so here is this man with a withered hand, and he's on the Sabbath. Is he going to do it? Is he going to heal on the Sabbath? Is he going to break Pharisaic law? Jesus says to them, he says... Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. As I told you at the time, he's he's pointing out the inconsistencies where their additional rules is getting rid of the intent of Moses. And he looked out at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts. Who's got a hard heart? The Pharisees they're rejecting god their hearts are hard now go to chapter 6 and verse 52 we've seen in then chapter 3 the pharisees reject jesus and we're told specifically actually i should probably refer to chapter 4 as well in chapter 4 with the parables mark quotes isaiah 6 and they, they, they may indeed see but not perceive, they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. They're not allowed to hear, they're not allowed to see, their hearts have been hardened. We'll come back to Isaiah 6 in a bit. But that's what's happening with Israel. What I've shown you in our studies is when we get to the later chapters after that, by chapter 6, we start to see that though the disciples... Um, can see who Jesus is to some degree, they're still partially blind. Although their hearts are soft enough to hear from him, they're still partially hard. And so when he walks on the water, he says at the end of that, in verse 51, he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about their loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Again, there's a theme that Mark has been developing here about hard hearts. Look at chapter 7 and verse 6. When he condemns the Pharisees for their washing and cleansing and all these additional rules, he says to them uh, in verse 6, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Hearts are far, far away chapter 7 and verse 19, uh, when we had the defiling of a person, do you not see that what goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it does not enter his heart, but his stomach. He's talking about the, cleanse, the cleansing of the heart. And then he says, uh, a couple of verses later, for what from within, out of the heart of a man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, that's contextual to this, theft, murder, adultery, and so on and so forth. Okay, can you see the connection there? That we have, um, we have even the sin of sexual immorality coming out of the heart that is hard against God. Now let us look at chapter eight and verse seventeen. Chapter eight and verse seventeen. Uh, let's read from verse sixteen. There we began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread, and Jesus, aware of this, said, "Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread?" Do you not perceive or understand, are your hearts not hardened? Having eyes you do not see, having ears you do not hear, and you do not remember? In other words, what is very, very clear here is that Mark has this theme of hard hearts. And it's very clear from chapter 8 here that the hard heart is the same as the blind eye. It's the same as the deaf ear. You don't see, you don't understand, you don't hear, because your hearts are hard. That's the issue here. Now, this is a theme that is not plucked from nowhere by Mark. It was all the way through the Old Testament. Initially, the people who had hard hearts were those who were non-Israelites. Remember Pharaoh? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And because he hardened his heart, he wouldn't let God's people go. And eventually he does, but his heart is hardened again and he pursues them. And eventually, once we get to the, the prophets, when Israel have now succumbed to this sin of idolatry so greatly, we now see the concept of hard hearts. We've already made reference to... Um, I'm going to run out of time. I was going to go through them all. But in Isaiah 6, we have the, you know, the eyes not seeing the ears not hearing. That is a hard heart. God put a judgment upon Israel that their hearts would be hard. It's a theme that ran through Isaiah, which is where Mark has been referencing a lot, as we've seen, which is why Mark uses that theme. It's a theme that runs through Jeremiah as well. I'll give you but one example. No need to turn there because I'm going to try and be super quick. Um, But Jeremiah uh, chapter 6, I'm reading from, and verse 28 Um, I have made you a tester of metals among my people that you may know and test their ways. So Jeremiah is going to test the people. They are stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders. They are bronze and iron. All of them act corruptly. That word stubbornly rebellious is the same hard-heartedness that is being referred to here by uh, Mark. So what is the solution to a hard heart? What is the solution to a hard heart? Well, in chapter 31 of Jeremiah, in verse 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, Okay, so the Mosaic Covenant is clearly being referred to. God says, I'm going to have a new covenant, not the Mosaic Covenant. That's what he's clearly saying. Um, They broke that covenant, they broke the Mosaic Covenant, though I was their husband. So God, by the way, the book of Deuteronomy is written as a marriage covenant. Israel was married to God in a sense. And there is all of that going on in the background. But notice this, this is what he says, but this is the covenant I will make in the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So with the new covenant, not the old one, not the Mosaic covenant with the Mosaic laws, but with a new covenant, the laws of a new covenant will be written on the hearts of of the people. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So because the law is written on the heart, Israel will be God's people. They'll be saved. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the greatest declares the Lord, uh, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So under the new covenant, which is ultimately a covenant for Israel, that will ultimately be fulfilled because they will all be saved, they will know the Lord, no one will have to teach each other and say, hey, come and know God, this is God, this is who he is, come and believe in God, put your faith in God, he's your God, come and put your faith in because they all will already. As Paul says in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. And the key thing that makes that possible is that sins will be forgiven. Sins will be forgiven. Now, let's have a look at one other passage regarding the new covenant. Ezekiel 36 says, uh, You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you again. I'm trying to keep moving now. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you shall be clean, uh, cleaned from all your uncleanliness and from your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now this is a new covenant, folks. Under the new covenant with Israel, he is going to get rid of the old heart and give them a new heart. It's a heart of flesh, meaning soft, not hard. He's gonna give them a heart that is no longer hard. The problem with Israel, with their idolatry, was a hard heart. They're cleansed by water, which by the way, John takes that analogy of water in Ezekiel and uses it to speak of the Holy Spirit. And then Ezekiel backs that up for us pretty much by saying, I'm gonna give you a new spirit. The Spirit's going to be in you and the Spirit in you will enable you, cause you to live a certain way. And Israel will one day all be saved. At that point, they'll be glorified and they will not be sinning anymore. Now, I know about you and me, but I, I still sin. And I'm pretty sure you do as well, right? We're not Jews, most of us. So that doesn't necessarily directly apply to us. But what is very clear in the Bible, is that the New Covenant is the basis for our forgiveness of sin, that the Holy Spirit that was promised to Israel en masse, we have received, and the Holy Spirit empowers us. Now, the New Covenant hasn't been fulfilled yet, because it's not going to be completely fulfilled until all of Israel believe, until they're all saved, and they sin no more. Right? Right? But there are similarities with the new covenant that we are saved by. The forgiveness of sin clearly is one. The giving of the Holy Spirit is clearly another. And the giving of the Holy Spirit is paralleled with, is equated to, a new heart. Why do I go to all that trouble? To show you this. Under Mosaic law, Moses didn't command it, he allowed divorce, mentioned it as happening, because the people had hard hearts. They couldn't obey, they couldn't be faithful to God, so how are they going to be faithful anywhere else? But as Christians, as we have seen routinely through our studies of Paul, in Ephesians, in Colossians, in Philippians, Christians are empowered by the Holy Spirit. If there's any part of Mosaic law that was there for hard hearts, it cannot apply to Christians because Christians in the church era don't have those hard hearts. That's the whole point of the New Covenant. Can we be hard hearted? Sure, we can be hard hearted. But it's certainly not part of our commandments and our allowances. We've not come to the fruition of the new covenant because we haven't come to the end of the age and the Jews being saved and we don't have our glorified bodies. But the empowerment not to sin is there and therefore the allowance to sin is not there either. And I tell you all of this and I emphasize it and I explain it very carefully because there are Christians who are typically, most Christians, 90 90, 95% of Christians fall into one of two categories on divorce. Category one is Hillel. You can just get divorced when, oh, hasn't it worked out? Oh, that's a shame. Oh, I really don't think you should get divorced. Oh, it's not working. You've been to counseling, it hasn't worked out? Oh, I guess, you know, these things happen. And they go back to church, and they go on being a Christian with no consequence at all. Jesus very clearly, well, we're talking about Jesus said, but that, that's category one. Shammai are the ones that say, oh well we're not liberal like those liberal Hillels, but if someone commits adultery, if someone's sexually immoral, then there's the excuse for divorce. But this passage might have allowed that under Mosaic law, but the very basis for it being allowed has now been removed. And notice by the way in the passages I read, the connection between Israel's idolatry and their unfaithfulness to their husband, Yahweh. There is a connection there being placed. God was betrayed, immorality, adultery, by the Jewish people, again and again and again and again. And God... Still loves those people. Now, what's interesting is because the relationship between God and Israel paralleled the Old Testament law, when Israel had been unfaithful to God for an incredible length of time, God issues.